G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon. In each episode, I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. How sweet to be an idiot As harmless as a cloud Too small to hide the sun Almost poking fun At the warm but insecure untidy crowd My guest today was once described as having a wit as dry as the Sahara. One of the great British pop tune smiths, he's just as renowned in comedy circles. From the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band to his work with Monty Python, the Ruddles, Rutland Weekend Television, the Innes Book of Records, his songwriting embraces the fundamental silliness of popular music in a way that's never mocking and engages the heart as much as the brain. He once said, I am an observer. I am more like a painter than a songwriter, more of an artist than a salesman. I am an idiot. Neil Innes, welcome to my favourite album. Thank you, Jeremy. Howdy, everybody, and good day. <laughs> well, thanks for being here. Um, all the way down, you're the first person I've talked to down the line from France before. Ah, France is a, a lovely place to live. You know, I think it's kind of the Florida of the United Kingdom. Wow. You know, the weather's a bit nicer. It's a bit further south, you know. Okay. That's an original um, analogy. Well, yeah. but, but it feels like, you know, to, to get to a certain age and you've got to think, well, where's, where, where do you want to finish up? So Yvonne, my wife, and I decided we're going to make a, a truly wonderful retirement home, a retirement home to die for. Perfect. Um, so, Neil, what is your favourite album? My favourite album, Jeremy, is We're Only In It For The Money by The Mothers of Invention. Out of sight, yeah. Listen, um, you, are you not, are you hung up? It was strung up. I can't understand. Out of sight, yeah. Listen, are you hung up? So this album came out in 1968. So for a bit of context, tell me about what else you were listening to at the time. I mean, this is right in the thick of when you were you were out there um, starting to make records. So tell me about how you first heard this record and what your initial reaction to it was at the time. Well, I didn't know much about Frank Zappa until Urban Spaceman came out. And one of the, I think it might have been the Melody Maker or something, got him, got him, got him to review it. sort of got the wrong end of the stick, really, because the the line in the song is, I'm the urban spaceman, baby, I've got speed. And he immediately thought I was talking about drugs. 
this will every speed freak will enjoy this record you know I said, wrong you didn't listen but um i was very uh, caught by the the album cover with all the mothers of invention in drag and things like that and it was clearly a kind of sergeant pepper spoof so i bought it and i listened to it and it was just the most amazing thing i'd ever heard i'd never heard any record like that before and i loved it well, even though he may have gotten the wrong end of the stick with Ivan Urban Spaceman, did you feel there was a bit of a kindred spirit thing between oh, you and Zappa? Absolutely. I mean, I, oddly enough, you know, I've always liked the music of Eric Satie and some of those odd, quirky French things. And to hear, I mean, I gather he was influenced by Edgar Varese. Is it Varese? I don't know. But uh, all those kind of wonderful, you know, off-the-wall tunes that go here, there, and then come back. It's just, um, I, I just, it's second nature to me. That's my kind of stuff. Feels like I've been listening to it a lot over the last few days in advance of us doing this, and it, it feels like an album that was perfect for a time when people listen to records really attentively. And I mean... Yes. It's the kind of record that it's hard to just like have on at half volume in the background at a party. It kind of demands a lot of attention and focus. <laughs> it's certainly not something you'd put on over dinner. No, but I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think people did listen to albums, you know, intently. I mean, I think Pet Sounds came around, out around similar time. But I think you have to remember that 1968 was not all peace and love. There was a lot of, you know, anti-Vietnam stuff going on. And and I've just come back from Chicago, not this year, but um, another year, this professor of IT and, and various sort of late things at Illinois University took me around Chicago and showed me the sites of the 1968 student, you know, sort of demonstrations and um, he said, and this is the hotel where they threw the, threw the kids through the plate glass window. You know, and it's amazing that you think that all that turmoil was going on there. So it's Mayor Daly and all that stuff. Anyway, I'll get back to the thing. Zappa caught that um, moment, you know, cop, killer, creep, pow, pow, pow. You know, and, and it was about something. And it had, the, had this effortless, you know, kind of structure and, and weird, you know, Melodies, beautiful little intricate melodies that sort of somehow meshed with the other ones. I don't know. It has a freedom to it. A lot of, you know, Zappa stuff I can't bear. But, you know, it gets too noisy and, and improvisation for the sake of it and whatever. But this is really focused. I think it's a work of art. It kind of does. There's that idea of like cognitive dissonance, being able to hold two ideas in your head at the same time. And I think people maybe struggle with that sometimes with records like this where on the one hand there's a strong element of like satire and like cultural satire and political satire to it and also political commentary and then on the other hand it's this really inventive musical record that can just be appreciated on that level but I think people have trouble with the idea that you can do those two things at the same time sometimes. Well, I suffer from that a bit. I don't see why. I mean, Shakespeare did comedy and drama. You know, I don't see why you can't mix the two because everyone's life is a kind of mixture of comedy and drama. What's the ugliest part of your body? You know, little things yeah. like that crop up. And, in a, and you need those things to sort of lighten the, the more 
objective and unflinching look at the you know the the downside of this far from perfect world i think he, he sort of he managed it he caught it sometimes you know you need a following wind and he probably had it but all or i can almost you know probably i could run the whole album through in my head you know the different structures and uh, the different songs concentration moon over the camp in the valley They're really quite good pop songs, as well as the bum diddling, bung bung, all that kind of thing. I, I love it. I mean, what did you call it again? The sort of uh, dissonance? Cognitive uh, dissonance. Cognitive dis- dissonance. Funnily enough, the guy, the professor in Chicago, I'm, I'm working on a thing um, called um, Show Me the Sanity, and it's exploring the idea of having a kind of app which is called Desperate Celebrities, which <laughs> on your phone, and then you get enough points to go into Supreme World in a virtual luxury villa where you get to uh, solve problems which people, you know, contribute anecdotally to the Institute of Cognitive Stupidity. But it's just a question. The, the lead line is, you know, is humanity capable of making the world a better place? And uh, it's probably not. But um, it's inter- I find it interesting that you know Macron, um, our French president, was actually was a student with a philosopher who practices that cognitive dissonance by holding two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. I think it's something that more people should try and do. <laughs> well, what do you think about this record is largely thought of to a great extent as kind of a response to, I mean, I guess to Pepper to a large extent. Um, you know, there's other things going on, obviously, but, you know, you mentioned before that the the cover is kind of a riff on the Sergeant Pepper cover and then, like, the inside cover has got, like, it's a direct mirror image of it with, like, a, like a overcast sky with thunder, um, you know, instead of the clear blue sky on the, the Pepper cover. And even, you know, the title, We're In It For The Money... You know, you could p- position that against something like "All You Need Is Love." So, well, what do you th- all the or the Ruttles, "All You Need Is Cash" is very close. Now, I to think of it. Yeah. So, what? Yeah, what do you think of like the relationship or what Zappa was trying to say about the Beatles or the uh, like the whole "Summer of Love" idea um, with this record? Well, I, I think he was sort of rightly, you know, sort of poking fun at fads, you know, because. Um, Hey punk, where you going? <laughs> bongos in. The, I'm going to play, sit and play my bongos in the dirt or something like that. So he, he, yes, he's having a swipe at hippies, and uh, and I think it's by mirroring the Sergeant Pepper thing, it's acknowledging that something was happening that was of a, on a scale that had never happened before. And so it's funny that this year that Sergeant Pepper went into the American charts at number one, straight in at number one, fifty years after it was released. 
I mean, that's it. It, it is an enormous, you know, sort of iconic moment in music history, Pepper. So he's quite right to sort of make echoes and use whatever he can to bring his, you know, unique observations to everyone, you know. I don't, I've no idea how the record sold, but I'm, uh, I'm sure a lot of people will listen to it. And there's enough smart people out there to get it. And I bet it doesn't... It's, well, I think it's probably just as fresh today as Sergeant Pepper is. And there's nothing like Sergeant Pepper, is it, really? Not really. I mean, especially not musically. And even the, the musical stuff it's riffing on, like the, the um, song you just mentioned, then Flower Punk is basically a takeoff on, on the Hendrix version of Hey Joe. Yeah, with that flower in your hair. That's right. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it even with the musical side of things, it's mm. it's not really. Although, sort of, there's a bit of that collage and like orchestral linking stuff, mm. I guess, which you could say is like sort of riffing on the transitions on Pepper and the way it was all held together like that, maybe. Well, probably. Yeah. I think I remember it. Sort of. Hey, punk. Where you going with that button on your shirt? I'm going to the Love Inn to sit and play my bongos in the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, it's great. I, I, I'm, I, it, it, uh, it's hard to sort of... It's probably you know, a bit like describing a painting, you know, to describe a record because it's really in the medium that it is in. You know, it, it's that abstract, wonderful nature of music that it's, you know, not just verbal. The lyrics are a part of it, but it's the sense of, uh, uh, of the, the colours and the harmonies and, the, the, you know, the melodies that go this way and that. You can't really do it injustice in words. Um, well, it's been nice talking to you then. Let's uh, wrap it up. <laughs> I guess there is, I mean, the famous, I I'm actually don't know if it's an accurate quote or not, but the, the famous Zappa quote that everyone used to throw at rock journalists was um, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. But, but, but it is, though, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit like you try... Have you ever... I remember John Cleese, you know, sort of saying how difficult it is to describe wines. You know, the, the taste, a taste of something, you know. I mean, you get wonderful, pretentious language, you know, describing wines. And it, one falls into the danger of, you know, trying to describe paintings or, or records. <laughs> you know, maybe I think, maybe I think um, we're only in it for the money has, you know, sort of the flavor of nettles and uh, inner tubes. I don't know. <laughs> it has a bouquet. <laughs> What's the now? I'm just trying not to um, throw lines at you from that Python Australian table wines um, oh. sketch. <laughs> Guaranteed to open up the sluices at both ends. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. Not a wine for drinking. It's a wine for laying down and avoiding. Yeah. <laughs> Another good fighting wine is Melbourne Old and Yellow, which is particularly heavy and should be used only for hand-to-hand combat. 
at the time this record came out, when you were getting into this record, was it, and I guess more broadly, like the Mothers of Invention, something that the other like musicians that you knew and were hanging around with also appreciating? Were you turning other people onto this record? Was there like a general oh, yes. getting of this? Oh, yeah. Everyone, I said, oh, God, if you, you, know, you should listen to this and, and whatever. In fact, I, I got several of other, you know, I mean, Weasel Rip My Flesh, Reuben and the Jets. I mean, I, we actually, I, have to keep, I forgot, but um, when, the, when the Bonzos went to L.A., Zappa came down to see us, but he didn't say hello. But the other Mothers of Invention did, and we went back to um, Artie. Oh, golly, I can't do names. Unbelievable. Anyway, Artie Tripp. We went up to his house in uh, in Laurel Canyon, and that was the first time, believe it or not, um, as an art student. I not, I'd never seen a book of M.C. Escher's drawings. He had one, and I was knocked out like that. And it was like the camaraderie between the Bonzos and the Mothers was, was instant and chuckly and a lot of fun. To meet the people who played on the on the on the album was uh, a, a real thrill, and to and and to find that there's you know the absolutely like-minded, probably better musicians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming they got what you guys were doing and probably oh, recognised absolutely. the commonality between the two of you. Absolutely, you know, I mean, you've got to remember the Bontos were they didn't they made quirky records but the, their their medium was live performance vivian stanchel was extraordinary you know he had a presence you know this man is dangerous you know he only had to walk on stage and you take your eyes off him what's he going to do you know and he 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 and so nobody you know who saw the bonzos um uh, ever ever you know didn't like it it was because of viv he had such a presence. We did we did the uh, the Fillmore West because um, Bill Graham, who used to run the Fillmores, um, asked us to do the Fillmore East. And, and after he'd seen what we did, he said, "You've got to come to there. I can't pay you, but I'll fly you out there and you have a hotel, whatever." And so we said, "Well, we want to do it, you know." So we went out there, and our act at the time started off with a thing called "We Are Normal and We Want Our Freedom." <laughs> She's not a million miles away from sort of that kind of period of the mothers. And Roger used to wear a striped hooped T-shirt with a matching striped funnel on his head that went up about four feet. So he's like a chimney head that matched his T-shirt. And he had a long arm that went on to the end of a long guitar on elastic. And that was he'd leap about with that. And then his head would explode. And then... Vivian would come out and we'd go into uh, Blue Suede Shoes and we'd play Blue, Blue Suede Shoes and then all of a sudden the music would stop and we'd mime and then Viv would look around for something to kick and then the music would all come back in again. And, and really, I mean, the, the Fillmore West, the people on the uh, in the hall, and, and you've got those Joe Cocker, Pacific Gaps and Electric, there's all sorts of people on the bill. They're all, all wearing those kind of waistcoats with mirrors embroidered into them. You know, they were all lying on the floor, you know, with long hair and these sort of embroidered goatskin waistcoats. It, they looked like a herd of, you know, embroidered goats. 
and um, restarted our thing, and uh, but uh, and people were going around sort of offering uppers, downers, diagonals, or whatever. <laughs> and um, when you know Viv came out, and well, Roger's head explodes. Viv come out, the music stops, and then whatever. By the end of it, they're all on their feet, ch- shouting, "Bring them back, Bill!" <laughs> <laughs> God, it must like at the end of that, you'd think they'd go, well, bloody hell, we don't need the drugs anymore, or did they kick in early? Well, who knows? I mean, I, I think a lot of the drug thing was, was not really there. You know, it was made up about sort of druggy hippies. I think on the whole, people were quite well together, and having, you know, obviously there were a few casualties, but um, I don't think the audience could have been that drugged. <laughs> Because, you know, they got all the jokes and they, you know, they're more into having a good time and looking cool, perhaps. That's something I feel like... I don't know if, like, a bill like that would happen today to have a performance like what you guys were doing, opening for a much more conventional rock band. I feel like that's... Everything's a lot more, like, in its own niche or everything's going to be in the one lane on on a show these days. Well, I, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm going to sound like an old reprobate from the 60s, but you can't help it. It has changed. The uh, music is much more compartmentalized. It's devalued in a way because you can even hear it in a lift. And it's, it's everywhere in some sort of squeaky digital format. I mean, if you compare it to, you know, like being a kid of about six or seven and living in a little village and a brass band, comes marching down the street. It's a, it's an amazing thing. It's going to, you know, drums and bugles and things like that. That's music, you know. That's what music can do. And this kind of sort of squeaky uh, stuff. And, and when somehow or other the whole generation sort of turned into a silhouette with sort of little earbuds, you know, listening to their own, in their own world to, you know. It has definitely changed, Jeremy. I I, you know, but... Who knows whether it's worse or better? What what goes is the sense of a collective narrative. You know, people. You know, the, you know, everyone's against the Vietnam War. Every, you know, and, and and all this kind of thing. And and what we have now is is sort of we're, we're divided and conquered. You know, we've been turned into bubbleheads by technology. This week has kind of been the Are We All Still Against the Nazis week, which was something I was not necessarily expecting to come up as a question again anytime soon. No, me too. I I mean, I've I've been sort of smugly thinking, what a lovely life I've had. You know, I was born just after World War II, and I didn't have to go into the armed forces to do a national service or anything. I grew up in in the 60s in London. I went to college in London, you know, and, and... and it looked like humanity was getting a grip on something. And to suddenly find now that, um, you know, and I'm 72. What's the nice thing about France is you don't do 70. I'm 72, which is 612. But, uh, that sounds way it, better than 72. It does. You don't even do 80. You've got to sit 420s and something, you know. But it, it's, it's there it is, you know. And, and um, I can't remember the thread of what we're talking about. But, um, it was something to do with elevator music. Yeah, the music has been devalued. It's no longer a surprise commodity. You don't actually have the ceremony 
of taking a record out of its sleeve and putting the needle on it, you know. I'm glad to say my grandson, who's 17, coming up for 18, has, is, is a vinyl fan, you know, and for his last birthday, we bought him Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, and it's his favourite record. So it will come around again, you know, but the, I, I can't believe, you know, what we're saying you know, with, with, with the Nazis and everything else like that. Who'd have thought, you know, as, as you say, we, we would have regressed to something like that. It's unbelievable. And so it sort of takes the, the gloss off one, one's sort of enchanted life, you know, to have to deal with complete cognitive stupidity now. Yeah. There is that kind of counterside to any kind of progress, you know, like the, the benefit of technological process and connectivity. There's an almost equal flip side to it yeah. where things regress in the opposite direction in in different groups of people yeah well the, the thing is it's not new i mean plato said that you know the only way a tyranny can actually exist is because when a democracy gets complacent and so you know that's obviously what happened that long ago and it's happening again as a kind of cycle i mean it was awful the last century to, to sort of have the first world war the war to end all wars when they've discovered how to sort of like slaughter people industrial you know, on an industrial scale and you know and then because of that there's a very interesting book by sebastian hafner called defying hitler and i recommend that because he was a, an eyewitness he was a kid at the end of the first world war and a law student but the time the, the Nazi rallies took place. And, and when you read it, there's, there's a chilling kind of uh, resonance with what's going on today. So anyway, so the, the, the Second World War had to be fought. And, um, and, and then, then there's all, you'd think after that, it wouldn't happen again, but it unfortunately is. And that's, you know, I mean, in 68, when Zappa put this record out, he was he was right to sort of like not be complacent and um, point out the, the, the unrest and the, it's not enough to play your bongos in the dirt, you know, when there's political things to stand up, up to and resist. Yeah, especially, yeah. I mean, 68 does feel very prescient to think of in a lot of ways for, I mean, people were comparing last year to 1968, but it's almost more appropriate to say this year is kind of all that coming round again. This year is the new 68, yes. Yes. <laughs> Although I feel like maybe, hopefully it's not going to be one of those things, you know, how every year for the last however many years has been the hottest year on record if yeah. it's not going to be every year is the new 68 and it, it gets a little more one-to-one -one and you have to stretch the imagination and a little less to make the comparison. Well, the other thing is that, you know, now whoever invented 24-7 news, you know, should should actually be executed. <laughs> There's no way around it. There's no, no kind thoughts. You know, there is one individual responsible because, I mean, well, it... it 24-7 so-called news is not news. It's, it's more sensationalism. I call it a, a worry-go-round. It's soft terrorism. You know, and it's, um, yeah, yeah, we're all going to scold. We're all going to do this. And, and somebody's bum looks really big now. You know, come on, what are you doing? You're wasting. It's like Peter crying wolf. 
you know, why don't they just wait until uh, there's something really important to ha that has happened or is definitely going to happen and we should get out of the way or something like that. But this kind of trivial, nonsensical eyes and teeth, kitten in a boot, the, the kickers, all that kind of thing, or skateboarding duck. You know, you have these horrors of, you know, mudslides and humanity being starving and everything else like that. And then there's a kitten in the boot. It's playing with people's, you know, uh, humanity. I, I, I really am down on it, I have to say. Uh, I think it's, 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 it's gone. I, I think they should bring back the news just on radio and have someone you can't see wearing a perfectly good dinner jacket and a bow tie holding like an RCA ribbon mic in, in front of their face and smoking a cigarette off mic. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's what we want. You know, and another thing, nostalgia's not what it used to be. <laughs> Bring back the BBC World Service. <laughs> yes. Actually, the BBC, the BBC World Service is probably still going. It just doesn't have the Goon Show on it anymore. Oh, the Goon Show was wonderful. Do you know that nothing's changed at, at, at the time? The BBC, I don't know who they are who run the BBC, and I'm sure the news editors are, are, are largely responsible. They've, they've, they've um, matriculated whatever in the dark arts. The news editing is really a dark art. But The Goon Show, when it went upstairs to the people, the powers that be, one of them was, looked at the script and said, what is this go-on show? <laughs> <laughs> so nothing's changed. It's a bit like record companies not knowing what they've got, and, and just as well, you know. But, I mean, we've got all these kind of market research and targeting things like, and, 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 I don't know. I, I watched um, some television coverage of Glastonbury this year, and there used to be a, a summer TV thing called Seaside Special, and it was exactly like that. And one of the awful things, you know, when I see huge crowds at festivals all, all chanting and things like that, it, it's, it's a bit alarming. I think, well, how many people here have, have heard of Hoagie Carmichael? I bet none of them, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I might push back slightly on that point because I feel like people, younger people these days have a far longer backwards musical memory than people at any point in history just because everything's so accessible, whereas, you know, in, say, in 1968, if someone was, you know, the age that people are when they generally go to Glastonbury, so in their early 20s, someone as old then as Hoagie Carmichael is relative to today, probably no one would have heard of them. Yeah, you're right. But yes, but that's it. You know, that's my generation. So that would be an older person. But there'd be probably older people in the younger people's memory that they might sort of say, "Well, that that's that was a different level of um, songwriting." You know, to the mainstream. Um, it's, it's like my my grandson who likes you know, Miles Davis, who incidentally said, "If you make a mistake, do it do it three times." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's jazz, but I mean, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, okay. It, but that's obviously just a personal kind of thing. Because um, George Harrison was big on Hoagie Carmichael too. You know, he wrote Georgia and, and loads of things, and Shanghai Lil, and, and oh, anyway. But uh, he he was a lovely, you know, kind of off the wall songwriter. But I mean, what's what's the other one um, who Dylan went to see? Woody Guthrie. 
you know, songs that were really about things, you know, they, they've always been around there, and I suppose some still are, but um, it John Prine is another excellent songwriter, Gretchen Peters, they're all out there, and, I, and it's, I, yeah, I, could, I dare say that there'll always be a section of whatever generation who, who looks for sort of um, quality and, and something that is actually human scale in the same way that Laurel and Hardy will always be funny because it's, they're human beings, you know, that everyone, it doesn't need explaining their quality. And, um, well, this is probably, you know, hypothetical waffle. What's the ugliest part of your body? What's the ugliest of your body Some say your nose Some say your toes I think it's your mind Your mind I think it's your mind I'm glad we're talking about this record because I think more and more you know having just come back from Chicago and I have the memories of the 1968 places there and incidentally there's not one statue to anybody either who, who resisted uh, or did anything there's not not a statue to the missing students or anything uh, it is back in um, back in fashion I think where everything he on that record is relevant to today now especially since Trump and everything else and the complacency of a society which has everything on tap, you know, I mean, these little Star Trek smartphones, you know, that you can tap and then you can find out where the nearest coffee place is. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty much all there, except for the jetpacks, you know. Yeah, what happened to that? I was, pro- I, I was like, I was told we were all going to have flying cars at this point. Exactly. In- I, I feel let down, don't you? Pretty much. I mean, I mean, not that I dislike the skateboarding duck, but you know, it's not really the same thing. No. Well, I hope, I hope people do, you know, check this record out and listen to it again. And because uh, I, I don't know in, in Australia, have you got similar kind of populist people strutting their stuff? Well, one of the advantages of of Australia, which I've actually just left. I'm I'm in Nashville now. I just moved to. Um, oh. States, um, for some reason, that I thought this was the perfect time to move to America. Um, but the thing we have in Australia is kind of a um, mediocrity corset. So there's like things can only exist within certain boundaries of of mediocrity, which means that we know we're we're never going to get some great transformative leader really, in our political system, but we're also not going to get someone um, as much of a dumpster fire as Donald Trump. It's kind of impossible for them to really rise to the top. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, in in Australia, you've got everyone scattered about, haven't you? um, It's a big, big place. I mean, I've been to Melbourne, I've been to, to Sydney, I've been to Nashville too. Nashville strikes me like a sort of seaside town inland. You know, you've got all your souvenir shops and your T-shirts about knowing jack shit. There's a bit of that. I mean, there's also... I've, Nashville is kind of, at least the way I see it, it's it's kind of two or three small towns sort of pushed in next to each other and I'm in the sort of 
you know, lefty cappuccino enclave over on the east side and then all the touristy spots with the the t-shirts and the honky-tonk bars are downtown and then there's, you know, you know, the other part where all the rich people live. Yeah, well, it is a hub, isn't it? It's the kind of crossroads of everywhere in Nashville, isn't it? It has You've become got... that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I've actually recorded in Nashville. I did a, a children's record for Children's Book of the Month Club and that was and worked with some real, really good Nashville musicians because they have a different system. They don't care what key it's in. You know, one is the, the chord of the key. Yeah, the number and, system. Two and yeah, and four and whatever. Um, and it's wonderful because uh, the guy on the piano was uh, uh, the keyboard player from um, Bread. Oh, I think right. he's really good. And um, he was just sort of playing on his own. All the others were sort of talking, coming up and saying, Monty Python, how much they like this and that. And, and I looked over to the pianist and, and he, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't going to socialise. And, um, and the bass player said, oh, pay him no mind. He's just getting in the groove. And I said, well, I'll soon put a stop to that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but he warmed up at the end. But the bass player, I have to tell you something, this wonderful bass player joke. It says about a married couple who wouldn't talk to each other, and uh, they tried every kind of remedy, and then the, the doctor said in the end, there's one very experimental thing I'll suggest. And so they, they, they went for it, and they were shown down some steps into a cellar, and then there was a little room with two seats and some curtains, and they sat there. And they'd not spoken to each other for years. Anyway, the, the curtains opened, and a bass player goes into a solo, and they immediately start talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Everyone talks during the bass solo. Exactly. <laughs> Let's return to We're Only In It For The Money with my sort of traditional wrapping up question on the show, which is if and when you still listen to this record, when you go and put on We're, We're Only In It For The Money these days, what's it like to listen to this album now almost within, you know, within six or nine months of 50 years from when it came out? I suppose it is 50 years like Sgt. Pepper, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, I've, I've got to do it on vinyl. I have got a vinyl player. It's high time. I, if I started listening to things, not to sort of pull something off the iTunes or whatever like that, but get the vinyl out and do it properly. Pay it the honour due. It's like going to see a painting in the gallery rather than looking at a, a magazine doing an article on it. Well, Neil, uh, thanks for talking to me today about your favourite album. Jeremy, it has been a complete pleasure. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon 
like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes, and if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.